Welcome, listeners, to the first episode of the podcast, Canadian Culture. I'm your host, Dr. Rhea Beaumont. With technology reaching most parts of the world, we really do live in a global village. This famous phrase was coined by one of the finest intellects of the 20th century, Marshall McLuhan. He was Canadian, born in Edmonton, Alberta in 1911. He studied at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg and then Cambridge University. He taught at Fordham University in the United States, University of Windsor in Canada, and then at the University of Toronto's St. Michael's College, where he was a professor of English literature for many years. Today we have a very special guest who's going to share his insight into McLuhan's work. He's the director of the McLuhan Institute, responsible for the inventory and evaluation of about 10,000 books in Marshall McLuhan's library that are housed at the University of Toronto as a UNESCO memory of the World Register. He's currently cataloging Eric McLuhan's library, his father's, of about 6,000 books. He's a lecturer, poet, author, craftsman, teacher, expert, and part of the McLuhan legacy. We have with us today, working from home, Marshall's grandson, Andrew McLuhan. Welcome, Andrew. It is fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It is truly an honor to be here as the first guest of of your new podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, the pleasure's mine. I'm starting with you and Marsha McLuhan and Eric McLuhan. And actually, I noticed that you started the McLuhan Institute in 2017 with your late father, Eric. Listeners can visit com to connect with some of the projects that you developed to preserve Marshall and Eric's work. But their work is also evolving through you. Tell us a bit about some of the projects you're working on, um, like the course you have coming up. Certainly. Um, if people want to visit the com, that's kind of the, the virtual hub for everything I'm doing. So it has links to the social media uh, and to anything I happen to be up to at any given time. Um, and yeah, I do actually operate the McLuhan Institute across different social media platforms. Photos of my journey go up on Instagram, bits and pieces and nuggets of wisdom from what I'm reading end up on Twitter, longer form things uh, on Facebook. Uh, people support me through Patreon, which is kind of social media for patronage. Um, and then there's a YouTube channel um, from which I have a lot of um, video and audio as well. Uh, you mentioned documenting and inventorying Eric McLuhan's library. Mm-hmm. Um, I do a weekly live segment on my Facebook page that uh, I then upload onto the YouTube page. And there's we're coming up on 50 episodes of that, <laughs> which is kind of amazing. Um, I, I didn't really you know, anticipate doing it quite so much, but 50 episodes times 15 or half an hour, even 30 minutes per episode adds up to quite a lot of, uh, you know, content, (laughs) which is kind of ridiculous. Um, But it just goes to show you um, how much there is to say about this material. And um, as you mentioned, uh, I documented and inventoried Martin McLuhan's library, which is about the same size as Eric's really. And, that was probably, it was my first major project in McLuhan work. And it took me about a year and a half. And it really cemented my interest. I mean, uh, aside from being the grandson of Marshall McLuhan, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to get involved with things. But by exploring, and in particularly the annotations 
which are really the record of Marshall's journey through his library. It really drew me in to the material and into his life and work in a way I wasn't prepared for, but of course I'm, I'm very grateful for. And it was to preserve and carry that work forward, which is why I started the McLuhan Institute a few years ago, because, um, you know, I've been working a bit with my dad, traveling with him and, and studying part-time. And uh, in 2017, in the summer, we were together in California for the Media Ecology Association Conference. And I just had this horrible vision of a time when he might not be around anymore. And there was nothing in place to keep going uh, once Eric McLuhan died. You know, uh, he worked with Marshall from the mid-60s up until Marshall's death in 1980. Um, but just kind of on his own. And there was, there was no McLuhan Institute. There was no structure to continue these things from the McLuhan tradition. So this is how I came up with the, the sort of general idea for the McLuhan Institute as a place to formally structure the continuation of those studies. And then my father died less than a year later, quite suddenly and unexpectedly when we were on another trip in Colombia. Uh, I'm really glad I did start the Institute when I did, because at least I opened the door to those things. But I found myself in, the, in a curiously similar position to my, what my father was left with in 1980 when Marshall died, because that was unexpected as well. Marshall was not even 70 years old when he died, if you can imagine that. He, he had so much ahead of him to do. And so my father was really left holding the bag. And it actually gives me a lot of strength and hope because my dad, he didn't just manage to keep going. He did an excellent job of caring for and continuing the work. And he believed in me. So that, you know, on the days when it feels like this legacy is too much for me, I just have to remember that my dad believed in me and that I could do it. Um, and, you know, that helps a lot. Wow. I met Eric a few times, and he himself was an author and, I would say, philosopher in his own right. Uh, you can see just the brilliance of his work. So when you're preserving it and, and bringing it into today, it keeps it relevant, even with COVID-19, as, as we're currently experiencing with, with the shutdowns and working from home. It's this shifting dynamic and the effects of technology has uh, has made such an impact and it's also affected culture as well. You've spoken on this subject. This is why my focus in McLuhan work is on the practical side of things. What to me is really valuable about uh, the work that Marshall started and that Eric kept going with was that it's not merely of historical interest. What they did was study the technologies of their day um, using a specific set of tools that they developed. And these tools aren't merely of historical interest, but they're, they're useful to us to understand what's happening around us today. And they'll be useful to us in 100 years and in 1,000 years if we're still around because it's what humans do. They continue to innovate um, and create new technologies. And we continue to do what we can with the side effects of them. And so any tools at our disposal to help us understand the nature of these technologies and their effects on us, I think are extremely valuable. So while it's nice to have a historical record and look, I've got my dad's 6,000 books, but I've also got this incredible trove of uh, treasures from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s 
Mm-hmm. Um, and they're nice to fill in a museum, but what I'm particularly interested in, what I think is extremely valuable, are the tools latent in the work of Marshall and Eric McLuhan. So, so that's what I focus on. Um, and to that, I'm just starting to develop, um, as I think you've probably become aware, a 12-part course in uh, understanding media, Marshall McLuhan's 1964 book. Um, which I'm really looking forward to, and it kind of started as as a bit of a, you know, a boast or or whatever comment on Twitter that it's impossible to cover understanding media in one class. Um, that you know, I feel so much sympathy for university teachers who you know teach an intro to to media or communications course and have to cover understanding media in one class because you simply can't do it justice. Um, but of course profs have to deal with the resources at their disposal so I don't hold it against them but I realized that I'm in an opportunity to do a more extended job of it and I have not only my own experience with the book which I've been reading since I was about 16 years old and finally understand to a large extent but I also have amazing things at my disposal from the institute which are namely I have a pair of copies of understanding media which uh, Marshall heavily annotated um, some years after the book came out. So I'll be using those in in teaching about the book. And I also have a really wonderful artifact, which is a scrapbook that uh, Marshall's wife, Corinne McLuhan, put together around the publication of Understanding Media. And it's full of articles and uh, pro and con reviews of the book. And, you know, the the, review, the bad reviews are, are almost better than the good reviews because they're humorous to look at at this point, you know, 60 plus years in the future when this book has demonstrated its value over and over. But people of the day, mostly academics, felt it was, you know, incomprehensible and completely useless. Mm-hmm. Um, and so coming from my own perspective and utility of the work, I'm going to be focusing on the first seven chapters of the book, which are really um, these sort of tools for understanding technology. Uh, The second half of the book is about 30 chapters looking at particular technologies with those tools. And I won't be going over those as deeply as much as trying to help people to take on board the more utilitarian or or practical parts of the book. So this is an example of, of just the kind of thing I want to be doing with the McLuhan Institute. And I've had so much interest in the course. It's, uh, you know, I thought maybe I'd have a handful of people interested. uh, And I have nearly 70 people on a mailing list that want to know more. So I'm kind of scrambling to get the details together because I want to start teaching it and have it done by the end of the year. So if you're one of the people that are interested, um, just email me, Andrew, at the McLuhanInstitute.com. And um, I'll have the final details by September 1st, I'm hoping. You could end up like your grandfather. He started out as a professor of English literature and ended up making a cameo appearance as himself in Woody Allen's 1977 movie, Annie Hall. I mean, that's an incredible transformation when you think about it. How do you think that came about? And what factors or or parts of his work do you think led him to be considered a cultural icon? That's every professor's uh, dream. It's more than a dream now. Um, The idea of a public intellectual seems to be a a job requirement, really, if you want to advance uh, in a university these days. Um, It's not enough to simply publish in an academic journal. You have to become a public figure. 
um, which is which is interesting. In Marshall McLuhan's day, that wasn't the case. In fact, um, when Marshall rose to prominence, it wasn't looked upon very kindly by his colleagues at all. In fact, it was not the sort of thing a, a you know a good professor would do. Uh, I mean, it's one thing to comment here and there in the news about things, but to become a, a celebrity, uh, to be called the you know a media guru and the you know, all these other terms they came up with, a prophet of the mass age and sage of the electric age and all these things was uh, rather unseemly, especially for an English professor. Um, what's an English professor doing talking about these things? The very interesting fact of the matter is that Marshall, it wasn't accidental that Marshall became a celebrity and an icon. In fact, there was a man by the name of Howard Gossage, and he and his partner, uh, Jerry Fagan, at an agency in San Francisco, got a hold of Understanding Media and thought that the world needed to be introduced to Marshall McLuhan and his work. So they actually approached him, uh, and uh, in uh, Gossage's wife's memoir, she says that Howard Gossage called up Marshall McLuhan and said, Dr. McLuhan, how would you like to be famous? And then they, they no, they, they made a concerted effort uh, to do just that. It was almost like a dare on their part to see if we can turn an English professor into an international uh, academic star. And that is what happened. Now, the key ingredient there was Marshall McLuhan himself. And you couldn't have taken just any English professor and done it. Marshall happened to be a very quick-witted person, you know, the kind of quick wit and retort that is almost a lost thing these days. Uh, we don't see it as much anymore, but Marshall had this ability to, um, you know, captivate and, and wow a crowd, uh, especially in conversation. And it was uh, these ingredients that kind of combined together to make Marshall the person that Woody Allen came to for, for a cameo in Annie Hall in, in 77. It's quite an amazing story. Well, Marshall's most famous saying, of course, is so multi-layered. The medium is the message. You've talked about it quite a bit, and we'll give some links to a website where you're going to be doing a dedicated project uh, for that. Uh but I wanted to ask you about Eric McLuhan, who had said the title was a typographical error. Now, I'm not sure if what I heard was true, but apparently Marshall loved it, uh, loved the title because it had multiple levels of meaning, like mass age. So I wanted to ask you, is, is that correct? And whether you think we're in a mass age or a mess age? Hmm. I mean, I wasn't around at the time, so I can't answer the question, really. I can only say what I know now. Eric was around. And it's interesting, if you follow what he said about it over the years, you do see a few different stories. But the story that he stuck with was that the medium is the massage was a typesetter's error, quote unquote error, maybe a deliberate error. But that when it came back, thus Marshall insisted that it be kept because he, you know, Marshall was a punster. Um, he was all about multi-level meaning and, and interpretation, ambiguity, and the things that we can learn from it. And so it worked perfectly. The medium is the, the massage. It's the thing that works you over. Um, the mass age, the mess age. Uh, I think the mass has gotten us into a, quite a mess. But uh, it's also worth noting that 
you know, this, this term technological determinance, determinancy, determinism gets thrown around quite a bit. And people use this as an accusation against Marshall, whose work could be summed up as saying we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us. But Marshall never suggested that we were without agency. And this is an important distinction. Uh, and dad, my father also said it, you know, we got ourselves into this mess and we can get ourselves out of it. We can also choose to be more deliberate if we wise up and get smart about things. Um, the thing is that Marshall worked his, his whole life, his whole career, um, once he got started with developing these tools and waking people up to these realities that um, we shape our tools and they, they affect us whether we mean them to or not. So why don't we design smarter and do a better job of it and create the kind of world that we want instead of having to deal with um, the fallout and the side, of, side effects of things? Uh, the Medium is, is the Massage uh, is a fun book. It's sort of a book that Marshall didn't write. It was a work done by a couple of people, uh, Jerome Agle and Quentin Fiore. So yeah, basically what happened was Quentin Fiore and Jerome Agle raided Marshall's uh, notes and put together this book called The Medium is the Massage. You know, Marshall wrote it, but he wasn't the author or designer, if that makes any sense. In any case, it's a, it's a fun work and um, very accessible for a lot of people. Probably, um, actually, you know, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure if it's a better seller than understanding media or not. Of course, Marshall also had fun with it later when he produced uh, a record, an LP, uh, an audio version of the book, which is uh, interesting to, to listen to as well. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. And the fragments of the audio samples are intermingled with Marshall in there as well, speaking text, uh, some excerpts from the book, The Medium is the Massage. It's Marshall's impact on culture that I find fascinating. It's not only a technological um, commentary, although the two are closely intermingled. But one of his more accessible phrases, I would say, is art is whatever you can get away with, also from the medium of the massage. That phrase, that outlook, was such a driving force for the art scene in the 60s and 70s, wouldn't you say? Like many of his statements, it's, um, he employed paradox quite liberally, and he liked to throw out things um, to provoke. You know, this is his way of experimentation and finding out uh, the nature of things just by he uses questions the way uh, a scientist might use a microscope. They're his laboratory. And art is anything you can get away with is, is a great little statement because uh, it's actually a comment on, on what art is in the public imagination, in particular what popular art is. And that is it's anything that people will agree is art. If it's too out there, if it's, you know, explicit or violent or otherwise offensive, it's not art. It's vandalism. It's, uh, you know, degrading. It's all kinds of other things that might be legal or illegal, but it's certainly not art. So art is anything you can get away with. Uh, and anything you can't get away with is not art. Yeah. And the combination of the pop art by Quentin Fury, along with Marshall McLuhan's text and the layout and the, and the companion LP that we don't really hear that much about were, were quite significant at the time. 
Um, actually, you can find vinyl records of the original printing, the original pressing, uh, fairly easily online for not that much money. Um, and of course, the reissues available too on vinyl. Um, you can listen to the whole thing online. There was even, um, I think, McGraw Hill Films. There was a film made for Understanding Media too that you might be able to to track down. Um, but you know, Marshall made a lot of made comments like that about art, but the arts and, and art in particular, he had very definite ideas of what art was and what it wasn't. And uh, he leaned very heavily on, on art in the arts, particularly the verbal arts uh, and language and poetry and works by people, especially like James Joyce, because he felt that the artist, and you know, this could be a painter or a writer or anybody else. The artist was the person in society who is, always, you know, pushing boundaries and searching for new ways of seeing, uh, feeling, of experiencing. Um, and in that regard, they're ideally placed to understand the effects of technologies because they're invisible for, for you and I for the longest time. Uh, and we just feel their effects. But what the artist does, the artist tells us what's happening. And so a lot of what Marshall um, understood about technology actually comes uh, from artists and how he interpreted painting and uh, literature and poetry. Um, this is the value of art for Marshall. Wow. Yeah, this has been absolutely amazing. Um, I wondered if there was anything you'd like to share with listeners, maybe some insights that they didn't know about Marshall or your father, Eric, or something on a personal level. Um, I would think that carrying on the McLuhan tradition is uh, an adventure, but also a tremendous responsibility. Well, it is. It's it's a lot. You know, there are a few things to keep in mind about Marshall McLuhan and his work. Um, for one thing, don't forget that he was an English professor. That fact that he was an English professor is very important to his work because he came to the study of technology and the effects of technology on culture directly from the study of English literature. In fact, you know, a lot of his genius, and this has been remarked on by lots of people, is not that he just had lightning out of the blue insights, but his insights were earned by taking one subject and applying it to the other. You know, uh, he, made, he made great use of metaphor. And in fact, he applied uh, literary criticism to technology. Um, and that's important to note because a lot of people will separate these these two McLuhans, the literary McLuhan, from the you know media theorist, if you want. Um, bring them together and don't be afraid to. The other thing, uh, which is interesting, and it kind of breaks the fifth wall a little bit, but you know, Marshall was a very deliberate person. He he had an uncanny understanding of how media communications, media work. Uh, what plays well on television versus what plays well in a newspaper, um, how material is presented in an essay versus how it's presented uh, in a book or in conversation or in any other form. And he was an incredible mimic and actor. Um, so if you want to have a bit of fun, approach his work that way. When you watch him uh, giving uh, a lecture or when you watch him in an interview in the 70s on television, or when you read an essay of his, know that he's uh, deliberately um, giving a performance. He's 
tailoring his your experience uh, of him to that form, um, which is something that is not so unusual today, although not a lot of people do it, but um, was certainly something people weren't prepared for back then. Uh, and I don't think many people have, have caught on to this aspect, this multifaceted aspect of Marshall McLuhan yet. I think that insight's really going to help a lot of people take a fresh look at the enormous body of works written and spoken by Marshall McLuhan. That's great. Thank you. Um, you have your own podcast. Yes, it was just launched. What's it called? Where do we find it? And that's terrific. And by the way, let me offer congratulations. It's not easy. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah well, um, it's called The Massage <laughs> from the McLuhan Institute. You know, I'm, I'm really lucky to have a lot of people who not only appreciate what I do, uh, but want to support it. And in particular, I have a small group of people um, who are much more experienced in technical matters than I am. What uh, I'm going to be doing with this podcast is uh, interviewing people. Um, and I'm going to look for people outside of academia to talk about what the medium is the message means to them in their art practice, in their business, in their day-to-day -day lives, and just have conversations, you know, with nothing else on the agenda, but uh, mutual discovery and exploration. And hopefully something interesting comes from it. Oh, I'm sure it will. Uh, that's terrific. And you are also very active on social media, multiple channels, um, almost everywhere. Where can listeners find you? You can find the McLuhan Institute on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Um, again, my major source of funding right now is Patreon. So patreon.com slash McLuhan. Um, and then I'll be delivering this course, which isn't going to be free. Very excited about that. That'll keep me busy for the rest of the year. And you know, the thing I'm most grateful is that people, I'm kind of doing this myself, but when people ask me to give a speech or, or to write something, it's an opportunity for me to dive into a subject more deeply than I would otherwise have, have time for. This course, it's giving me this opportunity to dive into understanding media more deeply than I have in a few years. And really, I'm going to, to benefit greatly from it. So I hope a lot of people come along for the ride because half of it is going to be discussion and question and answer and um, we'll see what happens at the end of it maybe maybe a book that would be wonderful Andrew it's been a pleasure and a privilege having you as a guest today especially as you are working from home during COVID and you have your children with you so thanks very much for inviting us into your home virtually today I would encourage listeners to visit the McLuhanInstitute.com you can also visit the McLuhan Institute virtually and do a tour as well, as I'm going to do. Oh, good. Please do. I'm going to post links to Andrew McLuhan's websites, projects, social media, and Patreon page at CanadianCulturePodcast.com. Thank you for being such a fabulous guest, and good luck with your many projects. Thank you so much, and good luck with the podcast. This is Rhea Beaumont with Canadian Culture. Thanks for listening.